Happy Hanukkah, Bill. Thank you. Happy Hanukkah. First night of Hanukkah tonight. Uh, I need to get on my annual uh, donut making. Darn uh, right. I've, I've not, That's uh, what I'm talking about. I've not set a date for donuts yet, uh, but that has to happen soon, as well as latkes. Yes. I saw that there's some controversy over what to put on latkes. There's like, I guess, two things. Like one apple is sauce, applesauce. Sauce applesauce. What's the other one? Applesauce. And? Sour cream. Okay. And, and, and what is the share family on this? I don't like sour cream. Uh, so I tend not to. Uh, and my kids aren't, aren't big sour cream fans. I think my, my, my wife would definitely put sour cream on it. Um, I, don't, I don't think any of them put applesauce on it. I think they just have them straight or with ketchup, which I'm sure is sacrilegious. When I was like uh, 12, year, 12 years old, um, my mom was like a nanny for a, a, a Jewish cardiologist mm -hmm. in Frederick, Maryland. And he invited us over to his house one night for yeah. Hanukkah. And we had latkes. I, it was a really cool experience. I don't, and, and I liked them. I don't think there was any topping or, you know, but I feel like uh, I would be a sour cream <laughs> guy if, if push came to shove. Yeah. Um, I mean, as far as like holiday foods go, donuts and latkes is really strong. It's really hard. I mean, like the main thing of Thanksgiving, the big turkey, like, eh, you know, turkey, who, who gets that excited about turkey? Sides you get excited about, like latkes a good side. Donuts, solid dessert. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, and, and uh, Adam Sandler just tweeted out, his Hanukkah song. And I think in sort of in the preamble of that, he talks yeah. about uh, there's a lot of uh, Christian kids have a lot of stuff and a lot of songs, yeah. but there needs to be so a, a Jewish song. Uh, and so I think it comes to music. Christmas definitely wins the day. Um, although I do think that Bare Naked Ladies album, you know, <laughs> sort of covers a lot of ground. Um, but when it comes to food, I think I'm going to go with you, Bill. I, I think latkes and donuts are kind of hard to beat. That's right. Um, I'm not. I'm not a huge fan of the Adam Sandler Hanukkah song because it's not a Hanukkah song. It's not about Hanukkah in any way. It's about it's it's a list of Jewish celebrities, and that's it. Yeah. Uh, Rod Carew. <laughs> I mean, it's a funny song about people you didn't realize were Jewish, but like, yeah. there, there, there are some good Hanukkah songs out there. They're harder to find. They're not nearly as many as well, that, that, that aforementioned Bare Naked Ladies album has at least two yeah. Hanukkah songs. Yeah. Right? One of Hanukkah, Oh Hanukkah, Come Light the Menorah. That's a classic, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, don't, I forget, the, I think the other one might be an original. I can't yeah. remember exactly. Um, but I've been listening now that I guess since we're talking about it, let me put in a plug. Uh, I've been listening to, uh, you know, it's, it's never too early to start. Uh, underrated, uh, is, uh, is the Charlie pride, uh, Christmas album, Christmas in my hometown. I grew up listening to that. I listen to it every year and I've been listening to, uh, oh, who is this guy? James. Let's see what this is. Cullum? C-U-L-L-U-M? It's know. sort of like a Harry Connick Jr. kind of thing, Bill, okay. but I think right. better. Uh, if people have recommendations for 
good holiday music that's come out in the last 10 years, I definitely want to hear it. I want to, I have certain things that are my favorites, but you know, my pop cult, my pop culture knowledge, you know, degrades over time. Uh, and on Spotify, you know, getting recommendations is sort of helpful, but still, like, there's more good Christmas songs and Hanukkah songs, but still, like, most Christmas songs are bad. You have to dig to find the good ones. Uh, and, you know, so I really love the relatively recent uh, version of Must Be Santa by Bob Dylan. Um, the, uh, uh, I never liked the SNL um, uh, Christmas Time Is Here song. Um, that's not the exact name of it. Uh, but one of the guys in the Strokes did a version of it, which is fantastic. Well, that's interesting. Um, uh, Julian uh, Casablancas, I think his name is. Um, and uh, there's a woman I came across who goes by Emmy the Great, um, who put for, put out like a small holiday album, and there's a song called Zombie Christmas, which is fantastic. Fonzie Christmas? Zombie Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Or we we go on for a long time. We could go on, but uh, I wish it was Christmas today. That's the SNL song. Christmas today. I wish it was Christmas today. But we'll have to. uh, I've already got my funny hat picked out for our Christmas episode this year, Bill. Uh, Make sure you've got a Santa hat or an elf hat or something. I think I need Uh, to get a good ugly Christmas sweater, but I don't have one yet. I need another one because I've worn the same one over and over. So. Uh, we shall work on that. We're a couple weeks out, but uh, I guess we should talk about last night's debate. Um, you watched you all think? the way through? I watched the whole thing because I had to write about it. So um, so I watched I watched the whole thing. Of course, you know, I started writing. You know how it goes, Bill, if you're in the industry. I, I, you know, an, an hour and a half in, I kind of had my column take. And at that mm-hmm. point, I was writing it with one eye and you know, watching the debate with the other. Um, but yeah, I, I basically had, had to watch the whole thing. Uh, I would say pretty good. Anything happened in the last 30 minutes that made you, had, that blew up your take. That's what you're hoping that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, uh, it, it sort of confirmed my take, I think. But that's the fear. It's sort of like being a sports writer. Right. Uh, the other team comes from behind and wins at, you know, last minute, your entire columns mm-hmm. is toast. But that... That's that's happened to me uh, once or twice in my in my life. Most of the time, it, you, your take holds, and it did. And my take was that. Uh, we, uh, let me tell you the story because it's premised on uh, my podcast. I interviewed uh, our friend Josh Krausar uh, from Jewish Insider, formerly National Journal, formerly Axios. And uh, I interviewed him this week on my podcast. We had a really good talk about Israel, but also about kind of uh, the Republican primary process. And um, and he was like, look, everyone's going to be coming for Nikki Haley. DeSantis wants to take her down because of Iowa. Christie wants to take her down because of New Hampshire. Um, and I was like, wow, you know, if Christie's sort of, if, if his big contribution to the 2024 race is destroying Nikki Haley, <laughs> uh, that would be a big deal, right? Because like, Obviously, he did that to Rubio. Right. I thought the whole point of him running this time was to stop Trump, mm-hmm. not the person who might stop Trump or who possibly <laughs> could stop Trump. 
So I said, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I, I think he may run interference for her. And that's really what happened. I, to me, the story was that um, Nikki Haley had kind of a bad night, um, but she survived thanks to Chris Christie, who I think kind of played a white knight and uh, uh, saved her, I think, a couple times, defended her and went after Ramaswamy and DeSantis. I mean, I feel like all these debates are the winner is who who beats up Ramaswamy, you know, because who is just a target rich environment because he's such an absolute obnoxious bore, uh, and who and who is not the actual obstacle to becoming the Republican presidential uh, nominee. Uh, so, I mean, I kind of agree with you. I mean, I, I and I didn't see the whole thing start to finish. I only caught highlights, um, but and I, I agree with you, Haley survives but she needs to do more than survive she needs to really you know draw a straight flush if she's actually going to win a early contest she is still very far behind with not that much time on the clock uh and uh, i'm not saying other things can't happen you know theoretically uh that could light a fresh spark but she got. She's gone as far as she had because of good debate performances, which are largely premised on taking shots of Ramaswamy. Uh, and you need a second act, uh, and I don't see where that where that second act is. Quite frankly, I mean that's the part of my skepticism about Haley is that I just don't think she's that good a candidate at the end of the day. Uh, she's kind of hollow. She's she, you know twisting the wind, finger in the wind. Uh, and you know, I saw her first TV ad. It was pretty, pretty meh. She's a meh candidate. Uh, there's an argument that like better a meh candidate than like a psycho dictator. Uh, but it's hard to see how you get from point A to point B and get past that psycho dictator being kind of meh. Yeah. I feel like there's something there that she's good and she's almost great, but never doesn't quite like last night would have been the opportunity if she had shown up and blown the doors off. And instead, it seemed like she was trying to almost rose garden her way. It's like, come on, you're down by she, she, I don't know how many points to Donald Trump. She debated like a front runner. Yes. But she's not a front runner. She's a front Correct. runner among those on the stage. But that's but that's that's and not even but but even even if you assume that Donald Trump doesn't exist, she's still not that far ahead. Right. Uh, to, to She shouldn't be playing uh, a prevent defense, as they say. I mean, and, this, this and, is and the NIT the, we're watching, not the incible, not uh, not March Madness. So, yeah. Uh, she needs so to find I, a way to get into the actual, you know, big show. And she still hasn't really done that yet. Yeah, I think she needed to bring it and she didn't. And frankly, if Christie hadn't been there... It could have been a devastating night for her uh, or or she would have had to have either she would have gotten destroyed and beat up and humiliated. Or maybe if he wasn't there, she would have had to have defended herself and it would have risen to the occasion. I don't know. But I think Christie uh, really kind of saved her bacon. And uh, this tells me something interesting about Christie, because um, I think he's going to endorse her. I mean, if, if we're, you know, who knows? But. Hmm. I think that that's the trajectory that we're on, that Christie, the question I always had about him is, 
when push comes to shove, is he going to prioritize stopping Trump, even if that means making a sacrifice and and um, uh, and, and putting his own personal political ambitions aside, or will he destroy DeSantis or Haley in order uh, to perpetuate his campaign? Will he will he do the noble sacrificial thing? And then now, it, based on last night, I think that that's the the path he's on. And Haley gets his votes, obviously, if he if he drops out and endorses her. If he was to endorse Haley, the logical time to do it would be after Iowa, before New Hampshire, generate like a big a big buzz in the in that late run up. Uh, and there's a, <clears throat> there's obvious logic to doing that. He's not going to be the nominee if he generally wants to stop. Donald, I, mean, I heard him on CNN the other day saying. So I was making the argument, you know, you're holding Haley back. Your votes would go to her. She's ahead of you. Um, why wouldn't, if you want to stop Trump, wouldn't you close ranks? And he has this kind of convoluted answer like, oh, voters don't think this way. Uh, we're always going to go in there and do our best. And blah, blah, blah. I'm, not, I'm not getting it exactly right. But it was it was, it, it was a unsatisfying and an illogical response to dance around what's obvious, which is he's dividing anti-Trump votes. Um so if he generally wants to give someone the best chance of stopping Trump, that's what he would do. Uh, yeah. and, and until then, he's going to be bombastic Chris Christie and try to hog them as much spotlight as he can for himself. Yeah, and I think the key is, I mean, I'm glad he didn't drop out before last night. I think he would. He did a service to Nikki Haley and to the never Trump conservative cause by being on that stage. So I think you're absolutely right about the timing, but there could be a temptation. If Christie, it's it's possible that Christie could be poised to think he can win New Hampshire mm-hmm. coming out of Iowa. Uh, I don't think he's going to perform well in Iowa, but New Hampshire, they can be contrarian. Uh, they don't want to rubber stamp Iowa. And um, Christie's sort of bombastic style could play well in the, the live free or die state. So will he make the sacrifice if he thinks he has a shot to actually win. Mm-hmm. Well, it's also possible that Haley's peaked. I mean, again, they she, she's had a relatively decent run, but she's only gained like five points nationally since September, about five points in Iowa. The biggest jump was, is New Hampshire. I think it's more like 15. Um, but still, I think, I think below 20 in the average. Uh, and if she doesn't have something else to show that would allow that momentum to continue, maybe it starts to fizzle out a bit. And Chrissy says, why am I trying to prop her up? She's going in the wrong direction now. So yeah, but the problem with that that endorsement, but the problem with that, you, you may be right about Nikki Haley, but the problem is Christy has no second act, right? Oh, because first of all, cards are on the table. You know who Christie yeah. is. Well, he has to win New Hampshire. But even if he wins New Hampshire, see, if 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 Haley wins New Hampshire, she could potentially parlay that into South Carolina and to something bigger. If Christie wins New Hampshire, I think it's not transferable. It's not scalable. The reason he will have won is a because New Hampshire is contrarian. Yeah. B because in New Hampshire, independence. Yep. 
or undeclared. New Hampshire can show is up not a bellwether to anything. The, the notion that New Hampshire like picks presidents is completely farcical, uh, and it it only gives you a short burst of media coverage. Which, if you have other attributes that play in other states, right, you can string something together. And so with Nikki Haley, number one, she was governor of South Carolina. Number two, she's the best person to beat Joe Biden, according to the polls. According number, to the polls today, I think. Yeah, I don't think it's a slam dunk argument, but go ahead. Um, number three, unlike Christie, I think she's got broader appeal in within the Republican Party in a closed primary. Um, Christie is wildly unpopular among Republicans. Um, Nikki Haley, as of now, has the ability, I think, to attract kind of suburban soccer moms, but also um, sort of standard. They don't hate Nikki yet well, the way they hate. Yet, I mean, she she's had like a relatively good run with nobody really laying into her. So you know, she's been able to be all things to all people and get some traction with people who are more suburbanite, who don't want Trump's um, obnoxiousness. But you could very easily see a concentrated carpet bombing attack on Nikki Haley, where she no longer seems all that pristine and, uh, and all, that, all that broadly appealing. Well, we saw some of that last night with Vivek well, but, 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 is not even, but he's not even like the best, like his attacks are, are lame. Like it, like Trump is generally pretty good at like finding your weak spot and hammering it. Vivek is like, you're stupid. I don't know where Israel is on a map. Like that's not a plausible argument. She's a freaking UN ambassador, you know, nuts. Uh, that's the, the, the best charge of the Haley is that she's a soulless empty vessel <laughs> that she's hollow inside. And doesn't, doesn't really stand for anything. Not that she's stupid. Uh, so I don't think Vivek really found the weak spot on her, which is why Christy could be like, get the hell out of here. Why, do you, why are you even on this stage? You're, you, don't, you don't really belong here. Um, but if Trump went in after her hard, I think he could do some real damage. And he will. It'll be worse than bird brain yeah. uh, if she keeps, you know, if she makes, you know, gains. And, and again, I, like, let's we should reiterate the bets that we made last week. Um you say Trump's going to win Iowa and New Hampshire. Right. I say Trump will lose one of the two. So that's a bet that is actually quantifiable. Uh, the other one is impossible for us to, to know ever uh, who's right. You think there's less than a 1% chance that somebody other than Donald Trump will be the Republican nominee in 2024. I, right. I give uh, Trump an 80% likelihood. Mm-hmm. So you, uh, you, you, you get to be the Nate Silver. I said it was 80%. I mean, I wasn't saying he wasn't going to be the nominee. Well, that's what I said. It's going to be impossible <laughs> to quantify or have any sort of uh, accountability. But that's that's uh, suffice it to say, I am much more bullish on the field than uh, than you are. Now, when we talked last, we haven't, we haven't, we haven't talked about the Sanders much yet. Uh, so I want to hear your take about the Sanders debate performance. But in So maybe, maybe weave that in. Uh, but... We don't have a lot of polling. I actually checked this this morning. We have about half the number of polls hmm. in Iowa and New Hampshire in this Republican contest versus eight years ago. Uh, and in Iowa, there was only one poll in November. Uh, there's two polls in October. I'm sorry, two in October, two in November, and one that just came out 
from Trafalgar uh, yesterday that was sampled in early December. Um, Trafalgar had a, one of the November ones too. So comparing those two Trafalgar polls, I know Trafalgar is not exactly the best polling operation, but this is a Republican contest, not a general election where they're putting their thumb in the scale for the Republican. Um, and between these two polls, as we talked about last show, DeSantis got that Vander Plaats endorsement, the the big uh, Christian evangelical, evangelical kingpin whose endorsements have often propelled winners in the Iowa caucus. Uh, in November in Trafalgar, it was Trump 44, DeSantis 18, Haley 15. Uh, Tim Scott was still in the race at that point at nine. In December, it's Trump 45. Uh, so he gained one. Uh, DeSantis, 22. He gained four. And Haley, 19. She gained four. So I look at that and I say, I don't see a whole lot of significant movement here. Um, but you may look at it and say, hey, DeSantis got four points after that, that Devander Platt's endorsement. Maybe this is the beginning to bigger and better things. No, I, I don't really want to rehash last week's debate. I think it comes down to, do you believe the polls and do you believe things change and break late? Um, that's the fundamental question. So, um, but uh, to your to your point about, about DeSantis, he's just not good at this. I think we know that. We've, we've seen you're, enough. You're, you're unimpressed with his debate performance last you night? Know. Yeah. I mean, I, I just don't, I mean, I think he probably did maybe his best debate, but it's still bad. It's just, he's, he's just not good at it. And um, I don't think he's on the stage with other Republicans. Like his best, his best venue is a press conference in Florida where he's yelling at reporters. Like he's very comfortable in that, that venue, but like drawing distinctions between fellow Republicans, he doesn't know how to do that. Well, I completely agree. Um, I think that in Florida, they, they were kind of guilty of almost like a protectionist policy where they controlled the venue. Um, he had, uh, the, uh, the physical environment that he wanted. He owned the microphone. Yeah. So I I think that like, in a way though, it's like you're in the veal pen, you know what I mean? Like. Mm -hmm. He had created an environment where he couldn't lose, where he couldn't fail um, in Florida. And and I think that maybe created a false sense of security. And it definitely worked as long as he was in that environment, but it didn't prepare him for running for president. It reminds me a little bit of, um, you know, back when I was a conservative blogger and people thought bloggers were really influential and really important. <laughs> I spent a lot of time around Texas Governor Rick Perry. In fact, I went shooting with him on two different occasions. And it wasn't just me. It was a handful of us. How's your aim? That was not bad. I've assigned, uh, uh, um, I don't even know what it's called, Bill. Uh, target, I guess, you know. Um, or uh, shooting, not game hunting. He signed it. No, one time we went clay pigeon shooting and one time it was at a firing range. But I got him to sign one of the targets from the firing range. And I think it said, shoot straight, stay conservative, Rick Perry. So I still have that. Um, But Rick Perry, 
I was bullish on him because he was so cool to hang out with. If you're at like a barbecue restaurant or like a firing range, like he was super fun and awesome and smart and like charismatic. Mm -hmm. And so I was really like, this guy's going to like be amazing. This guy's going to like, you know, be the next, at least George W. Bush. Mm -hmm. And then he gets on the debate stage and it all falls apart. And it took me a while to figure out like, wait a second, I was always around him in Texas <laughs> and we were always eating barbecue and, <laughs> and shooting guns. And as long as we were doing that, he was amazing. But that's not what running for president is. So, yeah. I mean, some of that, I mean, there, there's that part of it. Uh, but and like, and there's plain debates that don't move the needle. But if you're going to break out somehow, it's usually there and it requires a very fine dance where you're, you have to appeal to Republicans while attacking other Republicans. And that's that's tricky. Yeah. It's really interesting to me how people have different skill sets. Um, like Ron DeSantis is obviously very smart in a certain way. And I think he actually looked at COVID data charts and study. Like, I think he's analytical and, and he went to Ivy League schools. I mean, he's managed to get elected to Congress, managed to become governor of Florida. Like he's got, he's not dumb, um, but he's a hard, he just is a horrible, horrible debater. He cannot do it. It's not his, his skill set. I mean, I think about myself, like I sometimes have a hard time recalling the exact word, like target, for example, who I struggled with a second ago. As a writer, you don't see that. I'm writing and, uh, it, you know, it'll come to me. Um, you only see the final product. And I just think people's brains work differently and people have different different uh, skill sets. Rick Perry, amazing at the, at the firing range, horrible at nine o'clock at night on the debate stage, you know? By the way, I was always with him at like three o'clock in the afternoon too. Um, <laughs> well, so let me, let me ask you, Matt, because your bet is Trump loses one of the first two states. I do believe that will happen. So, that, so that means... Correct me if I'm wrong. Either DeSantis wins Iowa, yeah. or Haley wins New Hampshire. Right? You're not assuming Haley wins Iowa, correct? No, um, I think Trump. My, if I had to bet, if I had to extend not, my bet, part of the bet, I won't. We, we, we won't, okay, won't hold me to it. But I think Trump will win Iowa and lose New Hampshire, and I think that's partly because New Hampshire will not want to rubber stamp Iowa. Um, and I think it's also partly because independents and unaffiliated voters will show up and vote for someone else other than Trump. So that is my bet. I think Trump wins Iowa, loses New Hampshire. And I think there's a chance that if Haley is the one right now, it looks like she would be probably, especially if Christie were to endorse her, that that could light a spark. And there's going to be a moment, a, possi a possibility. I still think it's a long shot, but I think that is... That is the the hope at this point. Okay, um, want to shift gears? Does that, seem, does that sound totally crazy to you? Or I mean, look, I I, I, I mean, was... Joe, by the way, Joe Trippy, uh, I interviewed on my podcast this week as well. Uh, he puts it at thirty percent. Really, he's more <laughs> bullish than I am, and I think on, on Haley specifically. No, just on a non-Trump candidate, he puts it at thirty percent. And um, I don't I, I don't want to misquote him, but I believe 
it's safe to say he agreed with me that Trump will lose at least one of the first two mm-hmm. states. Well, look, I, in 2020, I made a case that Biden could lose Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and still win South Carolina and become the nominee, which is what, I mean, I, I don't like write in blood, but I I had an exchange with uh, Steve Kornacki on Twitter back then where I, I sort of mapped out why that was plausible. It uh, seemed implausible. That seemed implausible. I mean, in fact, well, Bill, I I was telling Democrats for a year, go with Biden. Biden can win. Mm-hmm. Biden can beat Trump. Go with Biden. But after Biden lost Iowa and New Hampshire, I'm going to admit, there was a point where I'm like, I think I have a column out there. Like, <laughs> it's Amy Klobuchar or bust. <laughs> Everyone needs to just go in for Amy Klobuchar. It was, it's, it's, it's not a good look, Bill, but that was out, out of desperation. But my, my case was based on both some history and the demographics of the states. So I knew enough of the history to know that these states don't just blindly follow one another. Uh, the demographics of Iowa and New Hampshire have no bearing on what Southerners do or what Southern African-Americans do. Uh, And the kind of races that Bernie, Buttigieg uh, were running weren't getting any traction uh, in South Carolina and Biden still had currency there. Uh, So uh, he had to do well enough in Nevada, where he came in second, if I remember correctly, uh, uh, that Clyburn didn't, you know, didn't peel off and came in with the endorsement, and Biden was able to uh, resurrect himself. Uh, but you, there was evidence in past primaries, even though the the you know the order of the states was different. There's other examples of candidates, Democrat candidates that have northern white college educated support. <laughs> hitting a brick wall when they got to the South. Uh, and so I could see how that could behoove, you know, Joe Biden in this instance. I don't see, even if, and I'm not, I don't think it's going to happen, even if Haley wins New Hampshire, where, as you point out, you got a weird mix of independents there that make it unique. Even if she wins her home state of South Carolina, uh, how does that translate into all the other states when we have seen that Trump has very broad support nationally. That's not just, you know, superficial name ID, but like real rock hard diehards. And the diehard doesn't get him to 50, but certainly gets him well over 30. Yeah. Uh, and it's not too hard to get into the 40s after that, which is generally what you need in these contests. Well, I think that's why um, this takes, ma- this is a magical, magical thinking. It's my year of magical thinking. Um I think what has to happen is two things. One, um, the sense that Donald Trump could be in legal peril and or will lose to Joe Biden. Uh, uh, Haley is a better matchup against Biden for a variety of reasons. That has to, that has to be part of the story. And then I think the other part of the story is and I've talked about this before. I just always think of it in, in, the, in the movie Rocky Four. You know, when Rocky's in Russia and he's fighting the you know he's fighting Dolph Lundgren, Ivan Drago, and I always remember there's this part where the announcer's like, "He's cut. The Russians cut, and it's a bad cut." 
It's like the first time anyone has drawn blood. If Haley wins New Hampshire, wins South Carolina, builds momentum, does how much of the support of Trump around the country and within the Republican Party, how much of the support of him is like a bandwagon effect premised on he's going to win anyway, he's the incumbent versus no, we genuinely love this guy. He is our guy. That in, in 2016, I thought that Trump losing Iowa would be it. That the whole thing was based on puffery notions of him being the strongest at all the times. And once you got to remember, Ted Cruz stole that election, though. <laughs> well, that's the thing, you know. I mean, Trump's going to say these things if he loses these states. Um, the 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 establishment have to get me. The media is out to get me. We gotta, we, I'm going to sue that. Who knows what he's going to say? He's not going to, he's not going to say, oh, boo-hoo me, I lost. You know, he's going to say everything's rigged. Uh, and uh, so we learned in 2016 that like he had some diehard support that was not rattled when he lost a state or two. Um, so I'm not convinced that Haley winning in a couple of idiosyncratic, idiosyncratic contests is going to be enough. I'm not convinced that legal jeopardy is going to, be the thread because of everything that's happened in the past year where every indictment, you know, gooses his numbers, even, even getting humiliated in a fraud trial is his numbers can go up. And the electability question is not working in Haley's favor because as it stands, Trump beats Biden in polls. So it's hard to argue that you need to abandon Trump. If Trump was losing by 10 and Haley was winning by five, like then maybe, but that's not what's happening right now. Uh, and, and it may well be that Trump is being over, is is uh, his price is overinflated in these polls right now because Biden is seeing a rough patch with younger voters in the wake of what's happening in the Middle East, and that's good, and that will eventually rebound. But it's all hypothetical when the numbers you're staring at right now saying Trump's going to win. So it's hard to get to pull people away on an electability argument. So the, there's so much has to go her way that isn't going her way right now. No, I totally agree. You say you're not convinced. I'm not convinced either. <laughs> um, in fact, I think it's 80% likely that it won't happen, but I but I think there's a chance. And um, as they say, we'll have to, as I think Trump says, or used to say a lot, we'll have to see how this plays out. <laughs> he used to say that a lot. I think he used to say that a lot, um, um, but we will. So I have a column up at the Washington Monthly today, totally different topic. I don't know if you're following... Uh, it hasn't gotten a whole lot of media attention, but the main surveillance program, a warrantless surveillance program uh, called Section 702. Yeah, Bill, uh, uh, just for those who don't know, I wrote my college dissertation <laughs> on Section 702. I could at length expound on this, <laughs> but I don't, over, I don't want to overshadow you, so I'll let you explain this. Well... Some people, you know, who aren't too young might remember in the Bush years, post 9-11, Bush was engaging in warrantless wiretapping uh, without clear legal uh, grounding. And when that was uncovered, uh, Congress passed a law that retroactively made it okay. And this was a controversy for Barack Obama if he was going to, you know, support this or not. And even though he, uh, he, 
had criticisms about it. I remember correctly, at the end of the day, he voted for the bill. I think he, I think he voted for an amendment in one way, then voted for a final bill that gave Bush the authority. Um, uh, first example, one of the first examples of, of showing that Obama was not going to be some uh, purist ideologue. Uh, so it's been law since 2004. Uh, and it, essentially it allows the intelligence agencies to target foreign actors and their, their communications, you know, phone, email, and such, you know, capturing the actual content of the communications, even if the foreign target is talking to somebody in America. You can't target an American. Uh, if you get information about an American, there's a lot of rules surrounding what you can do with that. Uh, but you are allowed to capture that communication. Uh, and every time this program is up to be reauthorized, it's always controversial. You know, a lot of the, you know, Edward Snowden leaks uh, were around this program. Uh, I, I wrote at the time that Snowden was, was being disingenuous and dishonest about characterizing what we knew about the program, uh, suggesting that uh, even the, Governmental reviews showed that it wasn't effective in stopping terrorism when, in fact, it said the exact opposite. He was conflating two, two different programs when he when he said that. Um, so there's, there's evidence in these reviews that this is back in 2013, 2014, that 53 successful uh, counterterror operations use Section 702 data, uh, over 100 terrorism-related uh, arrests. This is, again, this is talking 10 years ago. Um, and then since then... Uh, it's become even more essential to the intelligence apparatus. So more than half of the information in the president's daily brief comes from Section 702 garnered information. Uh, it's not just counterterrorism. It's helping with fentanyl interdiction, for example. Uh, so it's all these things that conservatives say they want. They want secure borders. They want to be protected from outside threats. Uh, and before, all the criticism about this program was coming from like left-leaning civil libertarians like Snowden and Glenn Greenwald, ACLU. In the Trump era, where Trump has fanned the flames against the deep state, uh, how the FBI is out to get him. Some people on the far right say abolish the FBI. Uh, they FBI has excuse me Section seven o two authorities here, and in particular, they can query Section seven o two data. And there's been some instances where they've they've done inappropriate queries. They've queried American subjects when they shouldn't have. Uh, and the folks who hate the program say, aha, the FBI is out of control. Whereas the actual reviews say they weren't like trying to like, you know, blackmail somebody. They weren't trying to humiliate someone for their, their sexual preferences. They just had a, a misunderstanding of the rules surrounding queries. And so we need to tie it up the compliance. So uh, the FBI director said, we have done these reforms to tie it up the, uh, the queries. So the program is due to expire this month. And uh, the question is, should we have some kind of reformer on the program? And if so, how, uh, how extensive? Uh, and you have 
Uh, in the Senate, uh, Mark Warner and Mark Rubio, bipartisan, the two top people on the Intelligence Committee, they have a proposal. It has some limitations on the FBI queries, but it doesn't require warrants. I mean, that's sort of, that's the biggest thing. Do you need a warrant to collect the data or search the data? Um, uh, Warner and Rubio do not insist on warrants. Uh, on the House side, the House Intelligence Chair, uh, Turner, I think it's Mike Turner. Um, his bill is more like Warner Rubio's. Uh, I think it's some very minimal warrant requirement, but generally speaking, not. Uh, the judiciary chair is Jim Jordan, much more of a Trumper, America First type. He wants a broad warrant requirement for Section 702. He has uh, Andy Biggs, who's one of the one of the people who, who ousted McCarthy on the motion to vacate. Um, uh, but he has some people on the left, like Jerry Nadler, for example. Uh, I believe uh, Pramila Jayapal is on, on that bill. So the just yesterday, judiciary passed the, the, the warrant bill in like a 35 to 2 vote. But the Intelligence Committee in the House is about to push forth their other bill, which competes. Where's Mike Johnson in all this? He isn't saying which approach he supports. Uh and the time's ticking to actually make sure this program doesn't lapse altogether at the end of the year. So Tuesday, there's reporting that Johnson said, because so every year we pass a defense budget bill. It's called the NDAA. You got to pass it every year. Or else defense doesn't have any money. Um, so again, of course, I know all this, but for the sake <laughs> of the listener, we'll, we'll go along with it. Right. Uh, so there's, so some people are like, let's just tack on a stopgap on this must-pass bill so we don't like, lose our ability to collect intelligence on, on terrorists all of a sudden. Johnson says on Tuesday, nope, I'm not going to put this on the NDAA. And Andy Biggs is like, hooray for Mike Johnson. We shouldn't, this shouldn't be tucked into some other bill. We shouldn't pass this without the chance to have amendments, to have changes. Uh, very next day, Wednesday, comes out, oh, forget what I said before. We're going to put it on the NDAA. Till April, so it extends till April. So he still isn't adjudicating what they should do after that point. But we're not, but presumably, we're not going to have a lapse in the authority. Uh, and uh, you know, from my perspective, I, I support the program. I think it's, I think it's been proven to not be a threat to uh, civil liberties, and it's proven effective. Uh, so it should be uh, maintained. And so, on one hand, you know, good for Mike Johnson that he didn't. Uh, jeopardize uh, the program in, in the short run. But I'm not really impressed with the process here. Uh, and it just, it creates, I mean, the column that I wrote for the monthly was more about the conservatives who are against this program, how hypocritical it is to be putting so much attention on the border crisis to the point where they're going to hold up Ukraine aid unless there's a border fix. But when it comes to, I mean, the FBI director just this week testified saying they're blinking lights everywhere. The threat mm. level has gone up to a whole other level since October 7th. Terrorist organizations are actively talking about attacks on America. You, you say you care about the border and you want to throw a wrench into the main intelligence program that's protecting us? Maybe, maybe the border is not really what you care about, if that's your stance. That's what my that's my one of my, my bigger points. But I also have in the newsletter my question about Mike Johnson. Are you really up to the task 
to navigate this issue and others. I mean, I, I get that your caucus is a mess. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's not, but you, you are not the most experienced person to lead this, this, this crew. And the way you're handling things is very improvised, zigzag, weak leadership. You know, he's got to deal with the 702 problem. He's got to deal with keeping the government open. He's got to deal with Ukraine aid. My confidence level in Mike Johnson is not high. No, I agree. I, I think it's interesting, though. It'll be interesting to find out like, who is Mike Johnson. Is he mm-hmm. a mainstream conservative? Well, is he like a Christian conservative mm-hmm. that could have existed 20 years ago mm-hmm. who has to play MAGA mm-hmm. to survive? Or is he a MAGA guy? Um, and I don't think we know that yet, but it, it seems like he has a lot of of traditional conservative instincts. Yeah, I mean, I think he's he's so far he's behaved more like Kevin McCarthy than people might have thought. He kept the government open over the stopgap, keeping seven hundred two going without you know insisting on changes imminently. Like he 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 is disappointing the far right, and they are, and Marjorie Taylor Greene was livid yesterday about about this defense. Well, not just in the seven hundred two, but also they didn't put in an, an anti abortion provision and. Uh, anti-transgender stuff. You know, there's things that they wanted that they didn't get. Uh, so Mike Johnson, I think, is trying to behave like a governing conservative, not a burn-it-down conservative. Uh, so in that sense, you know, I give him, you know, you know, two, two, two or three cheers. Um, I just don't know if he really has figured out how to keep this going. Uh, if, 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 he has the, if he has the spine to not just kick the can down the road, but actually make some calls to solve these problems. In fairness to Mike Johnson, I don't know if anyone could perform this job that he's been handed. And now with uh, George Santos out and Kevin McCarthy is retiring, retiring, resigning, um, I think Republicans are going to have a one-seat majority. No, it's 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 not that bad. Um, I it's think bad. they will, I think it goes down because I think at full strength, I believe it's 222 to 213. So if everybody votes, you need 218. If no one's voting president, everyone's voting yay or nay. You need 218 versus 217 to win a vote. So Republicans could lose four when they're at full strength. But if they have two vacancies, and it's 220 to 213. And now your magic number in a body of 433, your magic number is 217, not 218. You could lose three Republicans and win a uh, 217 to 216 vote, but you can't lose four. So I think Are you the only counting down when the party leaves. Correct, because okay. Santos and McCarthy are your two vacancies. So they could lose three. I think they can. I think they, I think on a on a vote where everybody. I think votes, now they can lose I think three. Now, as of today, they can only lose three. Well, it makes, so because Santos is gone, so you're at you're, you're at four thirty four in the House with a two twenty one to two thirteen margin. So if you lose three. You're at 218 versus 216. You lose four. It's 217 tie, which is a loss. 
So I was yes. told there'd, there'd be no math, in this, but <laughs> so I'll take your word. I'll take your word for it. But it, whether well, it's well, well, I'm agreeing with you. Well, you're so the, yeah. the the going down one more with McCarthy doesn't change the math. It's still okay. You can't you can't lose more than three. Okay, okay, I got you. Okay, still difficult, difficult to to herd these cats, uh, and to get anything done. And uh, these, you know, contrarian or just downright ornery, uh, weird coalition that you have to keep stitched together. So I don't envy him. And I don't know. Uh, I, you very well may be right that, that, that Johnson is not prepared for this. He doesn't have the experience for this. He may not, he may not have um, the backbone for this. But I just don't know how anyone could be successful in this job at this moment. I mean, what... I hate to go back, you know, several shows. What should have happened was a Democrat stuck by McCarthy and you sideline the small faction of Mealists and you do these basic things with bipartisan votes out in the open. Yeah. Uh, instead, we have to go through extra levels of kabuki uh, because no one can just acknowledge that this is the way that governing is going to work in this particular narrowly divided Congress. They mocked us. They hated us, but that's what we said, Bill. We, you and I were a united front on that one. Um, so maybe, maybe Johnson can handle like extra dupe, super duper kabuki and get to the same place at the end of the day. Uh, but one, we don't, we just don't know if he can keep those balls in the air. Uh, and two, it's going to be very harrowing over the next several months because because of the uncertainty of it all. Indeed. Well, we're about out of time, Bill, but uh, if it's cool with you, I'd like to just um, quickly mention a column I wrote this week oh, yes. uh, and, and get your take on it. We yeah. don't have to expound on it too much, but I wrote a column saying, uh, speaking of Mike Johnson, you know, Mike Johnson said, I think we got the votes to begin an impeachment inquiry on Joe Biden, <laughs> to which I say, Joe Biden should be like, Christmas came early. Thank you. Please throw me in that briar patch. Yeah. I think that the best thing that could happen to Joe Biden would be if Republicans impeached him. Um, this is, I granted, this is a crazy thing to say, but we live in crazy times, right? What happens if, if Joe Biden's real problem right now is uh, that he's kind of boring and he's having a hard time keeping his coalition together, you know, he's not even that popular among Democrats. Well, nothing in, in, in the modern era, nothing galvanizes your base better than the sense that you are being attacked. And so uh, we, we even saw it happen with Bill Clinton. And uh, I think we saw it happen with Donald Trump, where um, it, it is not what it used to be. And especially if it is perceived as being overwrought, um, I think that Biden could benefit from a good old-fashioned impeachment. What say you? Oh, I I generally agree. I, I certainly, if I was a Republican and I had Biden, you know, job approval down to forty or below, depending on what poll you look at, Trump beating him by a couple points in the in the average, which uh, would presumably win him an electoral college victory. Uh, Biden's base demoralized, young voters peeling off because they're mad about uh, the Middle East, um, possibly losing the Arab vote in Michigan. I would not tempt fate 
by doing something that would take all those other issues off the front page and create a rallying point for the Democratic base to unite around. That that makes no political sense. So there's no there's no upside to it. You're obviously you're not going to impeach and convict. If you did, you get Kamala, which may not necessarily I mean, maybe you think she's beatable, but you would give her a chance to be the incumbent for several months. So I don't know if that would be wise. But you think of the pressure this would put on moderate Republicans too. I mean, there are, I think there's 17 Republicans who represent Biden districts. Imagine the Republican Party forcing 17 or 15, however many you would need, Mm -hmm. 15 Republicans representing Biden districts to vote for impeachment or not, or don't vote or vote against it. Maybe even... There's even worse for them. There's no political calculation that justifies putting your most vulnerable House members, your majority makers, in that kind of political vice where they have to choose between the base and the middle. Uh, There's no argument that this is going to galvanize uh, swing voters nationally against Biden when you don't have the goods. I mean, if if you had the goods... If you had an obvious case of corruption to put forth to the public, then maybe you'd say, I maybe. Have a, I'm not even obligation, sure. political obligation, what have you, but they don't even have that. We've seen the dress, the blue dress or whatever. <laughs> we've we've had the smoking gun. It still might backfire. Yeah. Uh, is this, this is solely the only justification for it is a sop to the hard right and hope that that pacifies them enough so you can do things like keep the government open, fund Ukraine, and pass 702. That's the only reason to do it. Uh, I think Michael, Michael Johnson, Mike Johnson? Mike Johnson. Yeah. I haven't got, wasn't there a runner named Mike Johnson? Anyway, I, not, I, I still don't know who this guy is. I'm still have to Google him to get to the bottom of some of this stuff. But um, Mike Johnson, I think he's just feigning this. I don't think he, I don't think he's really going to try to impeach Biden. I think he has to do. I think this is just performative. I don't think he's really going to. Well, the next step is is an impeachment inquiry vote, not an impeachment vote. Right. Um, In fairness, I agree. But what do you do? Do do you start the the inquiry and then decide that he's not impeachable? That you can't. You're not going to go forward. Like, isn't that like an exoneration? Well, I mean, look, I'm not saying this is smart, but you typically you go impeachment inquiry with like. You're pretty sure you got the goods, yeah, and you just got to like sort of finish the job before. And this you would presumably vote. give you more leverage to do a deeper investigation or to get subpoenas. I don't even. There must be some benefit to the official inquiry, where you can gather more I data. Think, I mean, you have subpoena power already. I don't really think it gives you that much substantively. I think it's more there's a, there's a gravity to it, but I don't think it really changes so much as far what you actually can, what or how you investigate. Um, they've done a fair amount of investigation and they don't have squat. They do not have squat right now. Everything they hold up to the light, you know, falls apart. Uh, so uh, it feels more like a going through the motions to try to tell the Freedom Caucus types, we're, we're moving the ball forward. We're do- Hey, we're doing stuff. You know, we got we to see what we can get, but we're moving the ball forward. And look, it may be that Johnson says, okay, we did this and now we have to have the impeachment vote, but your Biden district Republicans, others might say, that doesn't mean I have to play along. It doesn't mean I have to actually go forth with the actual impeachment. And if you have the vote, you go to your Taylor Greens and your Boberts and your Biggs and 
and your gauge doesn't say, look, what can I do? I put it, I put it on the floor. I do what you wanted me to do. I don't blame me if these guys didn't vote for it. Uh, if, if that's what it takes to get them to, to shut up so they don't push a motion to vacate, I, I could. that's the only logical explanation I have. And, of course, they want to do the same thing with Mayorkas, the Homeland Security Secretary, for his handling of the border, which they are also – there's no argument that he did something illegal or corrupt. They just don't like his policies, which is not a basis for impeachment, but they don't want to hear that. So he may have to push for on that front, too, just to get him to be pacified. Well – uh, I'm not sure we learned much. I'm not sure we accomplished much, but it's always good to talk to you, Bill Share. As uh, the mantra on Seinfeld was, no learning, no hugging. <laughs> um, it's no cheers. Let's just say that. <laughs> uh, follow us on Twitter at DMZ Show. Support us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash Bill Share. Patreon.com slash Matt Lewis. Uh, what else? Uh, I got you check my stuff out at the Washington Monthly, the, the column, the newsletter. Uh, it's, you, can email, you get sign up for the email at thewashingtonmonthly.com. You can sign up on Substack, washingtonmonthly.substack.com. And uh, happy Hanukkah, Matt. You got it, man. Happy Hanukkah. And we will see you back here in the DMZ next week. Take care.